A note to listeners, this week's show contains themes of violence that might be upsetting. An internal investigation has cleared a U.S. Capitol Police officer who shot and killed a woman on January 6th. Ashley Babbitt joined members of a pro-Trump mob. On January 6th, 2021, a mob of angry Trump supporters broke through a police barricade and stormed the United States Capitol building. They were angry because they believed, wrongly, that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. As the world watched in real time, men and women, some in tactical gear, some carrying flags or wearing clothing with religious imagery, guns, or the name Trump on them, scaled the white facade of the building and broke in. Within minutes, one of the rioters, Ashley Babbitt, was shot and killed while trying to break into the Speaker's lobby near the House chambers. What were the bodies in this story? The bodies of the believers, the body of Christ, the body politic, the body of the nation. How does that body come apart? The answer is in the question I've learned to ask the believers. Do you think there'll be a civil war? They all said, yes. Welcome to Inspired. I am Kimberly Winston, sitting in this week for Umbreen Khan. Like so many of us, our guest today watched in horror and dread as the January 6th insurrection unfolded before our eyes. But unlike many of us, Jeff Charlotte was not that surprised, or at least not terribly. For 20 years now, Charlotte, who is both a journalist and a professor of creative writing at Dartmouth, has covered the far right and religion. In that time, he's hung out with fundamentalist Republicans, mixed with the Proud Boys, gone to militia church, and attended Trump rallies around the country. But the death of Ashley Babbitt on January 6, 2021, sent Charlotte on a cross-country road trip in search of what's behind our country's current division, its relentless obsession with guns, and how that relates to religion. The result is a new book, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War, and its findings are alarming. While the book includes some related essays previously published in GQ, Vanity Fair, and other magazines, much of it is new reporting, including a multi-month cross-country pilgrimage in search for the real meaning, if any, of Ashley Babbitt's death. The book aims to be a wake-up call to the deep and treacherous currents, both political and theological, that America is swimming into. What is the undertow that you're referring to? Because I counted at least, I think I counted three different undertows. Good. Yes, you're right. An undertow is a current that sweeps you out to sea. And, the, you know, if you've ever been caught, sometimes caught a riptide, um, uh, it's not sort of visible. You're swimming along. You don't realize that you're moving away from shore. So I thought there's been some forces that have been pulling us out toward um, this moment of Trumpism, this moment of, I believe we can fairly use the term fascism. For a long time, and we haven't been paying as a, as a country and, and really as a planet because we are, it's a global fascist moment, haven't been paying enough attention to them. That current's been carrying us uh, for a while. 
and, and I think we need to recognize that. We think we can frantically paddle our way back. We can get back to the way it was before. That's not going to happen. Another theme running through the book, of course, is Ashley Babbitt. You, I think at one point you call it a haunting. Explain to our listeners why she is so present in this book. The folks that I travel amongst, you just have to say her name. Um, she is uh, a martyr. She's their Crispus Attucks, the first man killed in the revolution. She was the 35-year-old white woman, an Air Force veteran who led a charge on January 6, 2021 in the Capitol. She had gone propelled by QAnon and her love for Trump. If you tune in to Tucker Carlson tonight or tomorrow night or the next night, one of the, I mean, he'll, it, she comes up a lot. You'll hear that she was unarmed. Uh, she was not. Uh, it's her knife that's on the cover of the book. She was the person who was killed. A police officer named Lieutenant Michael Byrd shot her as she was climbing through a broken window uh, on the other side of which were uh, members of Congress. And as soon as I saw that happen, I was watching, we watched almost in real time, right? We only see the officer's hands and they're the hands of a black man. And, and as a student of American history and American mythology, I understood what the right would do with that story. It's the lynching story. In the history of race in America, it's so often violence is preceded by the imagination of a crime against innocent white womanhood. Most famously, Emmett Till. Um, uh, Emmett Till wolf whistles and assaults this innocent white woman who late in life admitted that no, none of that had happened. So I knew that that was going to happen and start happening. I said, okay, now we are entering into a new theological phase of Trumpism, the age of martyrs. So uh, I decided to kind of follow the formation of this myth and to travel across the country talking mm. to those inspired by Ashley Babbitt, the martyr of the revolution. In this book, there are several chapters where you sort of um, decipher the code, the theology mythology of religion in the far right. Yeah, They're not so much deciphering um, as I hope translating. Partly, I think, because a lot of what, uh, to those of us who don't speak the various languages of the right, um, uh, some of those tongues seem like code but are not experienced by the believers as such, right? In Sacramento, California, where I traveled to begin my Ashley Babbitt journey, at a rally for Ashley Babbitt uh, with her mother. And I met a one of the speakers was a January 6th hero, um, local hero named George Riley, had been a local Republican official, used his pandemic, the check that we all got to travel to Washington. He's now facing three charges. He likes to claim it's six. He wants even more persecution. He is bitter because a man he was with, Richard Barnett, is famous for putting his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk and he gets all the credit when in fact it was Riley, as he said, he says, well, I pulled down my pants and rubbed my ass on, on Nancy Pelosi's desk. Um, why don't I get credit for that, right? And I, I was trying to understand how he understood himself in relationship to Ashley Babbitt. And there he gives us a, a key to both those two terms, mythology and martyr. Um, he said, I'm like the guy in 300 very popular Hollywood movie, the story of 300 Spartans who fight off a horde, a Persian horde, and uh, to the last man. One last man is left sort of to tell the tale, right? So Riley's experience of January 6th is he survived January 6th to tell the tale. Now, 
we know we're in mythic time here because I'm like, well, but you're not the only one who survived. Everyone survived but Ashley. But he sees himself as telling her story. She died for us. Well, that's a martyr. A martyr, of course, we who study religion know means witness. And I think there's actually a lot of sort of secular liberal resistance to recognizing Ashley Babbitt as a martyr because they imagine martyr is a good thing. If you like the cause, it's a good thing. She is a witness who died for her her cause. Just because her cause was false and foolish um, makes her no less a martyr. And especially the ways in which martyrdom often works, but especially in contemporary fascism, as this kind of sleight of hand magic trick where dead serve the needs of the living, right? The dead who have no voice. Um, Now George Riley facing three charges fights on. Literally, at the Ashley Babbitt rally, it turned into a brawl between Proud Boys and Antifa. And Riley, because he's facing the charges, hung back a little bit, but he was standing on the side of the fray. He was enjoying it. He was loving it. He fights on. Why does he fight? He fights for Ashley Babbitt. We can't ask Ashley if she would have seen another way, if she would have. Uh, I think at the time, she would have thought that, yeah, she was willing to die for this. Who knows, knowing what we know now. She never gets that chance. Um, but that's the haunting of Ashley Babbitt. Is I guess I'm trying to understand that magic trick. I'm trying to watch because I understand if they have that, that's a powerful story. It's a powerful symbol, powerful symbol. Yeah, Ugh. they just stepped up. And now I really do think there's a theological turn when this proliferating age of martyrs. And the amazing thing is you don't even have to be killed anymore to be a martyr. The January 6th prisoner choir who opened Trump's Waco rally, not with a national anthem, but with a J6 choir martyrs. Kyle Rittenhouse, a beloved martyr of the movement at the Ashley Babbitt rally I attend, it's his name that gets the loudest cheer. Once you get that martyr, it allows everyone to become a martyr. All right, so maybe I wasn't killed. Maybe I didn't even go to jail for January 6th. But you know, I was wearing my Trump t-shirt and my coworker really seemed kind of cold. I have been persecuted for my faith. But you know, now, The left also has its martyrs. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of the young woman who was killed in Charlottesville. Uh, Yeah, Heather Heyer. Yeah. Although I would say um, her name is not well known. Her story is not told over and over and over. I mean, I'm not kidding. Ashley Babbitt trends on Twitter every couple of days. Would you like an Ashley Babbitt t-shirt, a hat, beer cozy? Would you like an Ashley Babbitt flag? as pictured in the book? And there's all kinds of Ashley Babbitt t-shirts. The Proud Boys produce a... Ashley Babbitt challenge coin. It is black with a white figure of Ashley Babbitt, the sort of idealized white woman, and there's the gold laurels. And behind her is the Capitol, and it's on fire. And underneath in white Gothic letters, it says vengeance. If that's too rough for you, you can get an Ashley Babbitt flag, white woman against the Capitol, not burning, with a blue star where she was supposedly shot, or or a single drop of red blood on stark white. This is white supremacist mythology. And the only thing I know about Heather Heyer's actual self, her actual body, is that fascists attacked her for her weight, right? I know because I follow the right, I know a lot about Ashley Babbitt's body because they started shrinking it almost immediately. Uh, She was 35, fit woman, uh, very athletic and so on, but they needed to make her smaller. And on the day of, if you start watching the videos, quickly they decide that she's in her 20s 
No, maybe she's 16. She's 120 pounds, 115 pounds, 110 pounds. <laughs> then finally, uh, as one man who was arrested for his plan to lynch Lieutenant Michael Byrd uh, to hang him, she was just a little girl, an innocent, preyed upon by the black predator in this racist imagination. What I get out of the book is they have this sort of common language, common theology, if you will, that they share through their online networks. You tell me. Um, but like you said, everywhere you went across America, you said the name Ashley Babbitt, or you said, is there going to be a civil war? And everybody knew what you were talking about. Everybody knew Ashley Babbitt, and everybody said yes. I didn't even have to ask a question. I didn't have to say there's going to be a civil war. I just said civil war. Yeah. And the same with Ashley Babbitt. And you'd find people who dreamed they'd seen Ashley Babbitt, like the old labor song, I dreamed I saw Joe Hill. They'd had visions of Ashley Babbitt. You'd find people who claimed they had met just Ashley Babbitt. They couldn't have met her, but they believed I just, you know, at a truck stop one night. It was just a wonderful soul. And um, I mean, yeah, obviously religion adjacent language. Meanwhile, online memes start proliferating of Ashley Babbitt falling beautifully. Um, it's like a medieval saint's painting. They are also strangely beautiful. Ashley Babbitt's golden hair, her blue Trump flag, the red blood on the floor. And you really, you look, you feel like you're looking at a Caravaggio painting. We have explicit religious language. We also have Ashley Babbitt often depicted as an avenging angel uh, with wings and a sword. Very few of the people I meet are churchgoers. Ashley is not. And yet, they all understand themselves as engaged, and I don't mean figuratively, engaged in a holy conflict. Ashley Babbitt's first tweet, Halloween 2016, hashtag love, Trump, and then also a picture of a sign, Christians live in this home. She wouldn't even have been recognized in a lot of conservative churches. She was queer in practice, if not in theory, lived with her husband, but also their girlfriend. She was not any model of piety. At Trump rallies, First thing I notice is that every one of those rallies, there is a far right preacher opening them and the press is back there in the press box, sitting there looking at their phones, they're not paying attention. And it's not just they're not paying attention to that language, which it's inoculating the crowd, most of whom are not churchgoers, but now we are engaged in holy work. The preacher is almost always black or Latinx and the crowd is mostly white. I can't be racist. And I must be holy, because look at that black man up there saying, God bless you, right? And the press pays no attention and doesn't report it until Trump starts winning evangelical votes. And our political press says, how could this possibly be happening? That's Jeff Charlotte, author of The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. When we come back... Charlotte shares a harrowing story that made him, and me, reassess the value and the risks of reporting on religion in today's divided America. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. 
I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I am Kimberly Winston, sitting in this week for Umbreen Khan. We've been discussing the new book, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War, with author Jeff Charlotte. There's a story at the heart of this book that really shook me up. It made me ask myself if what we who report on religion do, ask people what they believe and why, has become too risky. But first, I asked him about a visit he made to a Miami megachurch that seemed lifted out of a Hollywood parody. In this wonderful chapter called The Ministry of Fun, you go and visit Rendezvous, or VU, church in Miami. Just as a writer, I love this chapter because it's just so wickedly funny and observant. But the point that you make is that there's no theology. It's just, we do this because it feels good. It's fun. It's fun to go to church on Sunday. It's fun to pretend that we're actually feeding the homeless. But by the end of the book, my question is, to what extent do you think organized religion is somewhat responsible for, you know, these unchurched folks that you see at the Trump rallies that think that because we're not teaching what Christianity really means in church on Sunday, we've sort of abandoned the difficult parts, the real parts of what Jesus said for this has to feel good, it's self-improvement. And so these ideologies that are out there on the right can sort of prosper and fester and grow because there's nobody telling them not to. It's one of the sort of the questions I think about a lot. And I might come at it from a sort of a different a different angle. I might disagree a little bit in the sense that when you say, like, we don't teach them what Christianity really means. Yes, we do. Mm. I mean, the same way that we don't like in religious studies, obviously, we don't like to use the word cult, right? One person's cult is another person's new religious movement, right? Their Christianity is real. And I think a good way for thinking about that, because we can say, oh, yeah, but they're cherry picking. And sure, they can say, I come not to bring peace, but the sword, but you're missing the metaphor. I would say they're not actually missing metaphors. They tend to concretize metaphors. 
right? They tend to take spiritual war. Spiritual war, um, you know, like jihad, spiritual war can be a personal struggle. But if you concretize that metaphor, you take that metaphor and flatten it, right? Spiritual war, why, it must be war. <laughs> Vu is a very empty church, but I do think it's part of the undertow. I wouldn't say it has no theology. It actually comes from a various conservative assemblies of God background, but it's so emphasizing your pleasure, your satisfaction, your glorification, right? Super hipster church. Pastor Rich uh, likes to point out that he looks like Leonardo DiCaprio, and he does. He might look better. Um, he's wearing $1,000 sneakers. He's the pastor who performed the wedding for Kanye and Kim. He's Justin Bieber's pastor. Um, he preaches a lot about looking good. His congregation looks good. They meet in the, the really super hip art district of Miami. There's all kinds of beautiful galleries. And also 96% of the children are below the poverty line. So what do you do? You hire cops to keep those kids out of your church. But you have to have a heart for the poor, don't you? So one day a week, you all gather at a community center where you've got a few homeless guys stored away, and then they are paraded out. One per table, please, so that everyone can crowd around them and relate. That's part of the undertow. You know, those kind of hipster uh, movements that typically come from much more conservative churches are reaching people who weren't going to go to the openly political church, um, didn't understand themselves as right wing, but they are slowly being pulled out. I can't say Vu isn't, I can say it's hollow, but I can't say it isn't Christian because in that place, that is what those Christians have chosen to be. I can't say the Church of Glad Tidings that I go to, a, a militia church. They have militia meetings on Tuesday. Uh, a, now a nationally prominent church on the right. Right-wing major figures like Candace Owens go there to speak. They don't have a cross anymore because that's just not what time when We're in wartime. The pulpit is made of swords. And I can't tell them also that they are not real Christianity. I can't say, how could you possibly interpret Christianity as a war religion? The history of Christianity is infused with war religion. They emphasize that. And I feel strongly about this because I think so many really great people, um, they want to say those people are fake Christians. Mm. Instead of wrestling with the fact of they're in the faith too. Once you say they're fake Christians, you're not responsible for them anymore. I have to say, as a Jew, don't reassure me that those people coming at me with guns are fake Christians. In the same way that as a Jew, I can't say that I have nothing to do with the Orthodox Jews in Israel who are imposing these horrific laws. We are in community. We are accountable to each other. You just said the ones coming after you with guns, Christians coming after you with guns. You are not using that as a figure of speech. No, I'm not. <laughs> that actually happened to you. So the last third of this book is a road trip that you make from Sacramento back to your home in Vermont. And along the way, you stop everywhere you can, at churches, at bars, community centers, all kinds of places. And you meet and talk to people who are part of this, this far right and speak this language. And the most shocking thing to me was what happened to you when you went to Omaha, Nebraska, and you visited 
the Lord of Hosts Church, which I believe, if memory serves, is in a mall? Yeah. Yeah, it's in a shopping mall. And you did what every journalist, real journalist does, which is you announced yourself. Hi, I'm a journalist. Here's my notebook. Here's my pencil. Can I come in? They were like, okay, you can come in. And you went to the service. Now tell people what happened. So the church is presided over by a man named Hank Kuhneman, who, Pastor Hank, who is a rising star of the prophetic far right. He appears regularly on a show called Flashpoint uh, with figures like Dutch Sheets. And they're sort of secular counterparts like General Michael Flynn and Congresswoman Lauren Boebert. Um, and these are the folks who prophesied Trump's victory in 2020. They insist that they were not wrong. As Pastor Hank says, and I think in actually a weirdly astute comment, right? He says, Trump is coming back, whether it's the man himself or the spirit in the body of another, right? Mm. Uh, yes, I want folks on our side to understand that as well. Um, I know I just used our side, and I'll speak to that because I actually do mean it. And it's a great church service. It's really good. The music is fantastic. Uh, and Hank is a white man who says he learned how to preach in the black churches of North Omaha. He knows how to preach. The message is terrifying. The message is one of war and not figurative at all. He claims that he has special visions of Jesus appearing in combat fatigues in a tight white t-shirt. But it's not just the militant Christ. Also, he says the sanctuary roof lifted off and a giant Native American warrior appeared with the biggest headdress I'd ever seen and hurled his spear down at me and says, take this up and reclaim this land. Um, the Native American passing his weapon onto the white man instead of the white man stealing, right? Now it's the white man is the rightful heir to this figure. It just keeps ramping up like this. And he starts talking about there's men with guns in the back. They're in tactical gear, you know, body armor, matching body armor, all black. In the it, back of the church, in the back, back of the, the sanctuary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, back, back to the sanctuary. Um, they're young and fit. And at first, I think they're cops. I would later learn that they're not. They are a sort of paramilitary force of the church. Uh, and uh, he says, I've got them back there. Why do you need men with guns? He imitates a voice. And he says, he says, because angels are armed. The church is armed. Um, but you can't see the angels. So men with guns are the earthly embodiment of these angels. You sure can see that guy with a gun. And then he says, it's like Psalm 23, you know, yea, though I walk through the, the shadow of death, thy rod and the staff. But he says, thy rod. And I can't believe it. I'm just telling you what I saw. Well, I did not put in the book. He does a hip thrust. It's not accidentally felt. No. It's like thy rod, you know, um, it is thy rod, thy gun, thy phallus. And he said, the rod is a gun. Um, well. Pretty, this is some service. Afterwards, I go to speak to them. No, 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 no. They're body pushing me out. All right, they say, I got to go. I go out in the parking lot. I'm not on their ground. And I get to speaking to three women who uh, have traveled to be there. They're not members. We're on public property. None of us are members talking about God. And they're telling me about the need for civil war and the problem with the cities. And the cities have a little too much um, diversity. And, uh, uh, and along comes a church usher 
blue blazer, you know, white shirt, just like what you'd imagine a church usher looking, except he's backed up by a gunman, um, full body armor, dead eye, you know, just like one of these guys who wants to be tough. And uh, they just tell me I cannot be there. And I'm like, but I, I'm on, out here in the party. No, no. And I said, I mean, I can't even just be out here just talking about the weather. He says, you know, well, if I was talking about the game, that would be one thing, but I'm talking about God. That belongs to them. And at this point, I should have walked away. I really should have walked away. I'd already been in two scary scrapes on this trip. I've been on the wrong side of a gun before, but I'm older and I'm more careful. But I just, I start to and I say, but wait a minute. I brought a pencil and you brought a man with a gun. And I got this mechanical pencil. And I'm clicking it. You know, like the red <laughs> it's like, you know, like uh, in a movie where someone like opens their revolver and empties the bullets. I'm like, look, I'm clicking the legs. And it's just back and forth. And the usher is kind of leaning in, sticks out his jaw, starts to grin a little bit. And I'm realizing these guys are going to escalate. I've been in this situation before. They actually are. And I realize where we are. I mean, they feel secure because I've already said, they said, oh, yeah, you go ahead, call the cops. They, they know who's coming, right? And I say, and I just one more time, I say, I brought a pencil, you brought a gun. And Marquise, the usher, leans in and says, how do you know I don't have a gun? I've been in scarier situations, but something about that felt like this 20 years of reporting, something has changed. That hasn't happened in a place like that before. You could always go, and I'm a lefty writer. I am transparently subjective. I'm not going to pretend to be objective. I've been welcomed in every kind of far-right place. Not because they were fooled, because they thought maybe they were going to convert me, or they thought, like, you know, what our message will get through, or because they believed in free speech. And now, and I've talked to other journalists who are observing the same. Now, those doors are closing. I mean, they told me that I might be a demon. And the pastor had actually preached against me from the pulpit. Yeah, they called you out. They called you out in the middle of the of the service. He said, I hear there's a, a journalist here. Yeah, yeah. Just report on, right on. I hope you enjoy working for people who pay you to lie, but your sin will find you out. And, you know, I'm sitting there in the crowd like, wondering what's going on and 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 i have to say frankly regretting having called ahead and said i was coming that single moment of the book absolutely terrified me i've been held at gunpoint in uganda and russia um i have uh crooked cops have slammed me hard up against the wall been threatened with baseball bats with knives and i'm not a tough guy reporter you know i'm not like a war correspondent has really been in scary places right um but I've just been in those situations. But this, this was just the order. And the confidence with which they said, go ahead, call the police. This was the order of the moment. And that question, how do you know I don't have a gun? I feel like that's the American question now. I saw more guns on this trip. And I'm a gun owner myself. I'm not afraid of guns. I saw more guns on this trip than I have in, in 20 years of reporting on the right. At Shooter's Grill, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert's restaurant and aptly named Rifle Colorado. Shooter's Grill is like Hooters, if you've ever heard of Hooters, uh, except the waitresses and short cutoffs and tight shirts um, also open carry guns. And most people in the restaurant open carry. And it sort of celebrates guns and Trump and everything else and so on. Even there, I'm, I do end up talking to one 
kind of nice militia guy. We're two lonely guys at the counter and we get to, to, to talking for a while. The manager doesn't like it. Manager comes up to me and I, I just looking at I couldn't believe what he did. He moves his hand to his firearm, doesn't put his hand on it, doesn't draw anything like that. I can't claim that, right? I'm just like, oh my God, is that guy's hand? It's like, you're going to have to leave his hand hovering over his gun. I'm, I, I, I didn't even get to finish my lunch that I ordered a Guac 9 hamburger. This All the hamburgers were gun-themed. I got the Guac 9. I can't remember some of the other ones. But, um, oh, there's Swiss and Wesson. Um, <laughs> and you can get uh, guacamole. You know, bring a gun to get someone to leave a restaurant. Bring a gun to get someone to leave a church. Um, and I just got to emphasize, this church, Lord of Hosts, the listeners imagine, oh, well, sure, you go to some backwoods hillbilly. No, this is a big suburban church. It looks like a Best Buy. It's got a beautiful cafe. It's got all the trappings of a modern mega church. The people are suburban. They are diverse. Um, the music is great. It's lively. The pastor is on TV every week, national TV. Um, this is not a remote corner. This, this is a new way of being. listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Our guest is Jeff Charlotte, a reporter and author who covers the far right and religion. We've been talking about his new book, The Undertow, and the divisions it chronicles. Divisions of politics, theology, and class. I wanted to know if these divisions are in any way distinctly American and what that might mean for our country. That's a very tough question. I mean, I want to say yes and no, right? And uh, I'll start with the no. I think one of the really serious concerns that we have to contend with is that we live in a moment of global fascism. I mentioned I'd been at the wrong end of a gun in Uganda and Russia because I was reporting on fascist movements there. And uh, unlike the last moment of global fascism, there's not really a countervailing force. Mm. Say what you will about Stalin, and he's a monster and a murderer. Um, but he was a countervailing force. Chinese communism is not a countervailing force. Essentially, it's got all the hallmarks of fascism. But beyond even that, we have all the leaders who are called Trumps. Erdogan, the Trump of Turkey. Bolsonaro, the Trump of Brazil. Uh, Duterte, the Trump of uh, Philippines, who has been since succeeded by a return of the dictator Marcos's son, who is even further to the fascist right. Modi in India is a fascist leader who came to power partly on his appeal to Hindu nationalism and partly on his record as a man who participated in mass killings. Um, it's a global fascist moment. So to say that is there something particularly American about this can blind us to that and blind us to how we're going to have to get through it. But I also want to say yes. Yes, it's a global fascist m- moment. But fascism takes many forms. I read a lot about movies in this book because so many of these people are are shaped by stories. We have Citizen Kane, Trump's favorite movie, and we have 300, The Godfather, also another uh, Trump favorite. Big Lebowski. Big Lebowski, Ashley Babbitt's favorite movie. I hadn't watched it in years, and so I watched it very closely and was stunned by what an elegiac movie it is. Also a political movie that I hadn't understood when I was young, you know, starts with the Iraq War. Um, 
and has, you know, Walter, uh, played by John Goodman, this broke down Vietnam vet. And I started going through Ashley's tweets and so on and watching uh, the big Lebowski feeling like a QAnon or looking for codes, but noticing that Walter and Ashley sound a lot alike. Um, and maybe that's clue right because in the movie if people have seen the movie it's john goodman john goodman's always likable right even though he's pointing guns at people who cross a line in the bowling alley right he still is likable and suddenly that's our clue to how this movement works right he's also i think very broken man and grief-stricken and i think maybe there's a particular element to that grief the american element we are not a country that mourns fascism, I think, is a denial of death, right? It's a belief in, in a, you know, an eternal truth of a, a regime, right? The real undertow of the book is the grief, the grief that is in process, that curdles into rage, that Ashley Babbitt feels the surge of emotion, and she calls it love. And it carries her right to the Capitol, just down the hall. There's another movie, The Shining. I couldn't stop thinking of that red tide in the nightmare. But also, of course, the J6ers, looking for Nancy Pelosi, going, yoo-hoo, Nancy, as Jack Nicholson in The Shining, uh, when he's been possessed or lost his mind. These stories, these stories, and if I say American, is there something American about it? It is these movies, and of course, movies are American. And that, to me, is maybe the American exception, is, is our refusal to mourn, our refusal to recognize loss. When you were making your road trip, you had grief in the car with you. You had your stepmother's ashes in the dashboard. I had picked them up, her son, and had ashes, and he had saved a portion for me to Mm -hmm. distribute with my children. That's right. So she was literally with you in that car. I wanted to ask you what the writing of that third of the book, where you make this um, road trip, what did that? cost you in terms of your own spirit? I don't think of it in terms of cost. I think of it as a form of mourning. Omaha cost me. That scared me and it stayed with me. And I think I'm a little bit more wide-eyed, not wide-eyed, naive, just sort of a little bit shell-shocked since then. I mean, the losses mount, right? I was in Wisconsin after Roe fell and it became the only blue state in which abortion became completely illegal, reverting to uh, 1849 law with a very, very gerrymandered legislature. And I was driving around and I was seeing uh, Trump flags. And I write briefly in the book, only briefly, that I was there with my child. Yes. Who was in a mental health program there. And as a queer non-binary child, we'd driven across the country and we decided to go on back roads. And it was just like the miles ticking upstate New York. Trump flags, don't tread on me flags, flags with skulls, flags with guns, AR-15s, blue eyes matter flags, the all black flag of no mercy, no quarter, no surrender. How do I tell my queer child, don't be afraid, don't be paranoid when one major party, 20 states are in the process of criminalizing them? Um, that's loss. That's loss. I can't promise them any kind of safe world. And and no queer person ever has been able to enjoy a completely safe world. But now it is really, it is accelerating institutionalized violence. We don't know it's going to be fine. We do not know. Um, But we can hope, right? So that loss, 
That's the source of your hope. One note here. The undertow is divided into three sections, each based on a popular song. The first is Deo, Harry Belafonte's 1956 Calypso chart topper. Jeff and I spoke just a few days before Belafonte's death on April 24th. The three sections of the book are tied to music. And the first section is named Deo for the Harry Belafonte song, right? The Banana Boat song. And then the second section of the book, which is part with Trump rallies in it, is called Dream On for the Aerosmith song because it's one of the songs that Trump plays in heavy rotation at his rallies. The third part of the book is called Good Night, Irene. Mm-hmm. And it's named after the song from the Weavers. Number one song in 1950. Lee Hayes, bass baritone for the Weavers. Big towering man, booming voice. You say that the story of Lee Hayes and Goodnight Irene are stories of hope. Now, I got to say, I don't know that I found the hope in that. I mean, Lee Hayes dies alone, a closeted gay man. His legs were amputated due to diabetes. I mean, Jeff Charlotte, where is the hope in that? Show me the hope because I need the hope after this. All right. I got it for you. I got it for you. It began with reading a novel by T.C. Boyle called World's End, which includes the Peekskill Ride of 1949, which was one of impossibly the first performance of If I Had a Hammer, Headliner, Paul Robeson, or as the local newspaper called him, the Russia-loving Negro baritone, and the townspeople. Complicated here, these townspeople who had just fought fascism in Europe and were broken, scared, tired, exhausted men, and they're like, no more, I was about to say a bad word, no Mm -hmm. more Mm -hmm. darn politics. And they were whipped up into anti-communism a local force, militia, 5,000 strong, comes out with air power. The New York State Police provide a helicopter. And Lee Hayes, Pete Seeger, uh, Woody Guthrie, Paul Robeson barely escape with their lives. It's, a, it's just a nightmare. And many people are terribly, terribly beaten. So I come across this Peekskill Riot in this novel. And I'm like, I, didn't, I grew up north of there. I didn't know about this. I didn't know. How come they didn't tell us when we sang this song that what this... The people were nearly killed for singing this song. And the, we, when we, they played it for us, but we didn't hear the Weavers. We heard Peter, Paul, and Mary. We should have like, well, if I had a hammer, I'd build a tree house and we'd all be friends. If I had a hammer is a revolutionary song. It's a grief song. Lee was a communist, although he was not a good one, as he liked to say. I'm the singing kind. Like, what kind? Are you Stalin Trotsky? He says, I'm the singing kind. Uh, it's the, that hammer too, right? And same with Deo. Deo, when I got to meet Harry Belfonte and I got to spend time with him and he was very generous with his time, he learns that song on the docks in Jamaica. He says, listen to that song. It's a work song. Like every work song, he says it's a liberation song. He understood his mission, his whole life as a liberation mission. He bankrolled the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King was his dearest friend. As I spent time with him, sometimes he would speak to Martin Luther King and it wasn't a performance talk about a haunting. And that is a haunting of a friend who is lost and the mission that they undertook together that was not realized, right? And he knows that. And he understands that after every, every victory comes a backlash. Oh, look where we are right now, right? Look where we are right now. Elect a black president. It doesn't matter how you feel about that president. We elect a black president and here we are, right? So 
Harry Belfani, here comes the hope. Um, <laughs> says, they're going to let you know you didn't win. That cheers you up, right, Kimberly? Yeah, all there. Yeah. <laughs> because look, I didn't want, I wanted people who were defeated. Because that's the struggle, the long struggle, right? I want to tell you about the people who held on to their hope even after uh, they were defeated, right? They're going to let you know you didn't win, Belfonte says. That's why he's been so angry so long. It's what keeps him alive. Where your anger comes from, he says, is less important than what you do with it. What do you do with it? What he's always done. You take it from the top. You sing your song again until they hear it like it's the first time. You make it your own and then you give it away. That to me is communion. That's solidarity. Harry's not a religious man, but he loves those hymns. Lee was a communist son of a preacher. And he describes, and I always knew this was going to be the last line of the book. And this is the hope I've got. It may not be enough, but this is the hope I've got. It's for, this is the hope I am able to give my child who is scared for their future. He describes uh, driving through the Arkansas night. As he puts it in a rump-sprung car, beat-up old car with a group of labor organizers, and there's gun thugs afoot, and it's a scary time. And a lot of his freedom songs, his labor songs, were hymns that he would, as he put it, zip new words into. But that night, he says, we sang the old hymns. We sang the Christian hymns, the comfort of that past. They were not believers, but they were what kind of Christians were they? They were the singing kind, right? This line I always knew was going to be the end. It was going to be his line. Was it possible for a while not to be scared even? That's the hope you've got, right? We have a long struggle ahead, and it's a struggle that not all of us will see it through. Uh, and that on the far side of that struggle, there will be so much loss. We're never getting that certainty that my father had an American rule of law that the institutions will hold. We know that we have to do democracy. We can't just have it. We have to practice it. And it might not work. It might. So that, to me, is the hope, right? It might work. Like. The struggle is long, but that's good news because that means it's not a final battle. This is not apocalypse. I have one last question. There's a footnote in this book that you intend as a correction to the 2008 book of yours called The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power. As I remember it, that book was about this sort of semi-secret clique of fundamentalist Christian Republicans trying to influence uh, American politics. And um, longtime listeners to this show may remember that we did a whole episode with you about that subject when Netflix turned the family into a documentary series. Now, in this book, The Undertow, you write that when you were reporting that book, you did not think that the far right merited the label fascists. And here you say, I was wrong. Now tell me about that. I was wrong. I know that lots of liberal Christians really resist um, the language of fascism. Mm. It feels like labeling. And they you know, are interested in that common groundwork, which is important. And so I'd like to explain why I use it. When I use fascism, I'm drawing from a deep body of scholarship. It describes a political formation, and that footnote goes on, right? I was wrong. One by one in recent years, objections describing Milton Trumpism as fascist have fallen away. I think it began with a fascist aesthetic, but it wasn't a fascist movement. In addition to the personality of Trump, a key element of fascism is that cult of personality. 
The movement his presidency quickened now cultivates paramilitaries and glorifies violence as a means of purification, and I would go further as a source of pleasure. Violence has always been a part of American life and a part of American politics, right? But we stood, we imagined, Reagan said, we are the city on the hill. At a Trump rally, the pleasure, as I encounter again and again from the pulpit, uh, in, is in imagining the violence you're going to do to another, right? That's a fascist element. Sadism glorifies violence as a means of purification, thrives on othering its enemies, declares itself persecuted for whiteness, diagnoses the nation as decadent. You start hearing the word decadent as you will on the right now. You are classically fascist times and embraces the revisionist myth of a MAGA past. Frederico Finkelstein was a, actually a great scholar of fascism and authoritarianism in South America and resisted. I mean, he was like, no, no, we have to make distinction between authoritarian populism and fascism. And at a certain point in the last couple of years, he said, and we can make that distinction. And it has crossed that line. This is a fascist movement. And I think naming it, because we had our hope note, right? It's not the apocalypse. Let's name it as fascism. Let us recognize that's again that complicity right when we imagine it can't be fascist we're, we're that's an old novel it can't happen here it can because if it happens somewhere else it can happen here because we're humans we are capable of sin or wickedness or whatever religious or non-religious language you want to use it it means it's a choice it means it's a choice and we can choose otherwise to choose otherwise we must recognize the gravitational power of fascism to say that's that is on the table let us actively choose otherwise that's all for this week's show if you're interested in finding out more about our guest jeff charlotte author of the undertow scenes from a slow civil war go to this episode's page on our website at interfaithradio.org While you are there, you can learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or by searching Interfaith Voices in the podcatcher of your choice. And you can help us out by leaving a rating and a review that helps others find us. This week's episode was produced by me, Kimberly Winston, Kevin McCarthy, and Umbreen Khan. Thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler for her vision, and MC Yogi for our theme music. Additional music was by Blue Dot Sessions and Audio Binger. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm Kimberly Winston. Thanks for listening.